Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. This month, we're talking China's industrial espionage efforts, both in the United States and in Australia. The rhetoric about China's espionage efforts has been ramping up, with the FBI director warning a Senate Intelligence Committee that China's threat to the U.S. is a whole-of-society threat. Here's FBI director Christopher Wray addressing the Council of Foreign Relations in April 2019. China has pioneered a societal approach to stealing innovation in any way it can from a wide array of businesses, universities, and organizations. They're doing it through Chinese intelligence services, through state-owned enterprises, through ostensibly private companies, through graduate students and researchers, through a variety of actors, all working on behalf of China. To discuss China's spycraft in the United States and Australia, we're joined by writer and science journalist Mara Vistendahl, whose book *The Scientist and the Spy: A True Story of China, the FBI, and Industrial Espionage* goes on sale just as this episode goes to air. We're also joined by Yun Jiang, a former Australian public servant and now co-editor of the newsletter *China Needs Han*. Um, Mara, let's start with your book, which focuses on one scientist turned spy, whose name is Robert Mo.、Um, here's an, a local Iowa news service reporting on his case. The FBI has arrested one of six men they believe are responsible for attempting to steal bioengineered corn seed from production fields in Illinois and right here in Iowa. It's big business. One seed line can be worth up to forty million dollars. In a news conference that wrapped up less than an hour ago, U.S. Attorney Nicholas Kleinfeld said Mo Hailong, also known as Robert Mo, is charged with conspiracy to steal trade secrets. He and several others were spotted in fields owned by Pioneer and Monsanto. They were digging up plants and attempting to transport them back to China. So, Mara, why did you feel that this is the right time to tell this story?、Uh, well, at the time the charges were brought against Robert Mo, I was living in China.、Uh, I was working for the journal Science as a news correspondent, and I didn't know that it would be the right time to tell the story. Honestly,、um, this was one of a string of cases that were brought over the years that followed. I wrote a short article about that case. That used a used a few puns,、um, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you probably used the word "corny" a few times, <laughs> and then forgot about it.、Um, but over the years that followed, there were more and more of these cases brought, and I kept going back to this case because it was the details in it were so wild, and because it had dragged out over the course of two years, and. Um, and then when it went to court, the court proceedings gave me a lot of insight in the way into the way that the FBI reacted to、um, these guys being found in a cornfield in Iowa. This is the one, isn't it, that Adam Brooks talked about, where the men were found kind of scrabbling on their hands and knees in a cornfield, right? That's right. So it it started when Robert 
and his colleagues were found near this cornfield outside Des Moines. Uh, and it belonged to a local farmer, but he was farming it under contract with Monsanto and was growing a proprietary inbred um, genetically modified seed there. Um, so that's a seed that's used to produce um, commercial hybrid seed that goes to market. And then over the years that followed, this group of guys who worked for the, um, this company, Dabenong, um, which has a subsidiary that works on seed breeding called King's Nowhere, they posed as farmers in the Midwest. They bought several farms. They, at one point, tried to smuggle seeds out of the United States in microwave popcorn bags. Um, and, so, and then actually they stuffed these small envelopes of the seeds that they'd filched into the boxes and then resealed the Orville Redenbacher and so forth boxes and um, stashed them in their luggage. And then the FBI's reaction was also comical at times. Over the course of two years, they bugged these guys' vehicles, flew surveillance planes overhead. So the FBI actually operates its own fleet of planes. The planes are registered under fake company names and they would fly low in, in circles over the Midwest. Uh, trying to scout out the targets. There were these kind of like low-grade car chases because everybody was driving really slowly. Um, so the, the guys who worked for Jabeno were looking for fields to target, and then the, um, the FBI agents would trail behind, you know, at 10 or 20 miles per hour. And that went on for several years. And the FBI even at one point took out a FISA warrant, which is normally reserved for... Um, cases of ter terrorism and extreme national security threats. Um, so it was just this fascinating insight into issue that started with a man in a field and then kind of spiraled out of control from there. But I mean, Mara, lots of large companies are under pressure from their Chinese competitors looking to steal their secrets. But why does the US government care, for example, when a Chinese company steals the recipe for making the whitener in Oreo cookies, um, which was a big case recently? Well, it dates back to the mid-1990s uh, when the Economic Espionage Act was signed into law by President Clinton. And that was the first time that trade secrets theft cases could be brought in criminal court in the United States or I believe in anywhere in the world. And, and so that was a real paradigm shift. Um, some people argue that it connects to the end of the Cold War um, as U.S. intelligence agencies were casting about for um, a new mission and a new threat to take on. Especially in the past 10 years, we've just seen more and more of these cases being brought. When we look at Australia, people are always talking about Australia as kind of the pointy end of the wedge when it comes to Chinese influence. But what is Chinese industrial espionage looking like in Australia? Is it the same kind of thing that Mao is describing? No, I think not. So what you're looking at is quite a lot of American companies are criticizing the, the Chinese government for industrial espionage. But we're not hearing to the same extent from the Australian companies. The Australian companies here, they're not as focused on technology and IP because our technology depends on the sectors. But if in most sectors, um, the companies we have here is not as much as a technology frontier as American companies. Um, so we're not having the same extent problem as American companies. And, you know, I mean, 
we've seen a massive, a series of massive hacks into Australian universities, including um, right here at ANU, uh, which are believed to emanate from China. I mean, is this a different tool in the industrial espionage toolkit? Is it thought that hackers are looking after something in particular or are they just phishing or is it hacking teams showing what they can do? I mean, are they after IP in these hacks? It is quite possible. So unlike the in the example of Mara's uh, book where it's a more traditional methods of getting trade secrets and intellectual property. In the ANU case, in a lot of other cases where hacking is involved, sometimes it can be quite difficult to know what was stolen and who did it. In the case of ANU, it is quite possible that they're looking for technology uh, for, because ANU, for example, is quite advanced in certain engineering and science aspects, for example, astrophysics. On the other hand, ANU is also very, very closely connected to government with its public policy schools and National Security College, for example. So they could also be looking at student files, which may have details of government workers. We don't have too much details of yet of what it was taken, what was stolen. So it's unsure whether it is related with trade secrets, intellectual property, or with government workers. So, Mara, when it comes to the effort in the US, I mean, how do you assess the FBI response? From one hand, it seems like the kind of resources that they're throwing at these cases, they seem extraordinary. For the case you were looking at, Robert Moe, there were over 70 agents engaged over many years. And I think in a recent interview, the FBI director said there were more than a thousand ongoing cases all over America. Why even are state resources and anti-terrorism legislation being used to uh, protect, you know, these American companies? And, And are they doing a good job at it? The ostensible argument is that America's economic might is a, is a national security issue and that the companies that are responsible for that might need to be protected. But after several years of looking at Monsanto and DuPont, you know, it became clear to me that there is this other issue, which is true in the seed industry, but also in many other industries where these cases are being brought, uh, which is a massive uh, cor- corporate consolidation. And the companies that very often get the protection of the U.S. government are also in industries with very little competition. And so there was this irony where by the end of the book, by the time I'd finished my reporting, uh, Monsanto, which was one of the two companies at the center of, of the FBI's case, was no longer even American. It had been bought by Bayer, which is a, a German conglomerate. So it does raise this question of what is the best way to protect innovation? And particularly also keeping in mind that much of the U.S. research force in the United States uh, comes from China. And we run the risk of alienating Chinese-American scientists, um, particularly when cases are brought um, where the charges are not as robust. And there have been a few cases um, where the people charge turned out to be innocent. That hurts the reputation of the FBI and of the United States more generally among the international research community. And actually, by the conclusion of the case that I looked at in my book, things have become so fraught that 
Robert Moe's defense lawyers were successfully able to argue that just the mention of his Chinese nationality would prejudice the jury. And they actually managed to get that banned at trial. I mean, Mara, in your book, you give the example of, of, of Xiao Xingxi, the, the head of the physics department at Temple University, um, who was accused of sending technology to manufacture superconductors back to China. He faced charges carrying 80 years in prison. He was strip searched and he was questioned while handcuffed to a desk. Yet within months, uh, the case fell apart. Here's his daughter summarising his experience. In 2015... My father, Xiao Xinxi, was falsely accused of passing U.S. technology secrets to entities in China. He was widely labeled a spy, and he was seen as a national security threat. This ordeal took a huge toll on him, as well as uh, my whole family and uh, our community at large. After several months, all of the charges were dropped completely because um, they were wrong. They were not based on any facts. Yet today, the U.S. government who accused my father and prosecuted him has not uh, apologized, explained, or been accountable in any way for this uh, abusive power that they have um, created. And my family has still been dealing with the consequences of this action. So Mara and Yoon as well, um, are American and Australian scientists being racially profiled because of national security? That is definitely the perception among um, many people that I interviewed. And if you look back historically, it is certainly the case that they have been racially profiled um, going back to the J. Edgar Hoover era in the 1960s and 70s in the United States. So part of my research, I was able to get documents uh, from the FBI um, showing that there was a program dedicated to surveilling ethnic Chinese scientists in the United States. And there did not seem to be um, much rhyme or reason to the program beyond assembling lists of scientists who were ethnic Chinese. And I mean, is corn a national security threat? I mean, this is one of the things that comes through from your book is it just seems a little bit silly going around prosecuting, um, you know, Chinese guys from what are fairly small companies running around the cornfields, um, you know, when on the other hand, you can have large Chinese conglomerates um, able to buy up the companies that own the IP. Um, for example, in the sector you're looking at, ChemChina paid $43 billion um, to take over the Swiss agribusiness giant Syngenta. So is there a mismatch between the FBI's traditional focus and what's required at the moment? Well, I think the FBI would argue that food security is very much a national security issue for Chinese leaders. And there is this priority at the government level in China on building up the seed industry, um, choosing national champions, and that DBN was one of these companies. But in the end, yes, that the acquisition of Syngenta by ChemChina happened over the as I was tracking this case, and um, in terms of the amount of IP that they managed to acquire and the amount of global influence and power, and that completely dwarfed any efforts that the DBN had made by you know, spending several years stealing around Iowa cornfields. So is that the future of a Chinese industrial espionage that, you know, there's almost no point in uh, skulking around when you can just acquire these companies and buy the IP. <laughs> that might be the lesson of all this. So when we look at the technology transfer or acquisition, 
there are a few ways where a Chinese company may acquire, for example, American technology, as you mentioned. Uh, one of them was to buy a company which um, owns the patents. Uh, of course, that can be expensive. Um, and also another thing they are mindful of is whether it will be knocked back by Cepheus or in Australia's case, FERB. Um, so, but I think in terms of corn industry, perhaps that risk is a little bit lower than other technologically sensitive cases. China has also been trying to get technology through what United States called forced transfer, technology transfer, which is where they require American companies when they go to China to participate in joint ventures, kind of like technology in, uh, as a condition for market access. So there are the two, perhaps, uh, well, the buying way is the most legitimate way of transferring technology. Where that perhaps is either too expensive or not feasible, I think then they will consider theft either through physically stealing corn or um, cyber hacking. I think when they consider how to acquire technology, they're probably trying to weigh up whether buying is over the long run cheaper or stealing is cheaper. And maybe in that case, they perhaps thinks that, thinks that stealing will be easier and cheaper than buying. And if all of that is not possible to shut out because perhaps the technology is too sensitive, then they will then, of course, look at doing research and development themselves. And we are seeing that China is spending more and more on research and development. And as they do that, they are probably going to be more like American companies to try to protect their own IP, to develop um, legal framework for IP. So I think... Um, we need to look at this um, issue also from the Chinese company's perspective and see their incentives and interests mm. as well. I mean, thinking about incentives and interests, I mean, um, particularly looking at your book, Mara, in the background of the book, um, there are these meetings that the executives go to, um, some including ones that uh, Xi Jinping attends, um, where they're exhorted to catch up, to acquire technology. Um, I mean, how much is pressure from the state driving these companies to steal technologies and how much of it is, is simply down to um, commercial interests and, and one-upping their competitors inside China? Well, I think it's both. It certainly doesn't hurt that the the Chinese government will look the other way when it comes to theft of foreign technologies. You know, there tends to be this perception in the United States that the Chinese government is like literally sending spies to the U.S. to steal civilian technologies. That does happen with some of the dual-use technologies and with um, cyber cases and so forth. And there have been just case after case brought in the past two years that have um, traced back to the MSS and so forth. But with most civilian technologies, it's the much more mundane story of a company trying to get ahead, knowing that there are these big growth tar targets in their province and so forth, um, that they'll get all these accolades for, for being the first one to get this breakthrough technology. And then nobody's going to ask about where the technology came from. And you know, I think Yoon is right that as countries uh, have knowledge of their own to protect, they do start to develop robust IP regimes. And you know that's certainly true if you look at the history of the United States um, and possibly Australia. It, it did not uh, research that as, as much for, for my book. But um, um, if you look back at, at U.S. history, 
we stole quite a lot from Europe and from England in the early years, and then developed a moralistic stance on protecting IP later on. And you know that is something that, of course, Chinese government leaders love to point out now. Um, <laughs> others would say that that the scale of IP theft from China is much larger than anything we've seen, um, including you know, in with the early United States. Um, and there may be some truth to that because um, it's certainly much easier than ever before to steal technology, and the flow of um, of people across borders. It happens all the time that people leave one company and take a file when they go to another company, and that has sort of accelerated um, the number of cases that are being brought. But it seems to me, I mean, I did a story uh, for the Guardian actually about a Torch Project, which is one of these, how do you call it, an academic industrial incubator scheme where China uh, sets up these kind of science parks and universities. And the first overseas one uh, is in Australia at UNSW. And initially when they built this, and when they started this scheme, they uh, gave 30 Chinese companies, they hosted them on the campus of UNSW, they gave them lab space, uh, they gave free PhDs to the workers of these companies, and they included quite sensitive companies like Huawei, and also companies doing work in areas that could potentially have dual-use capability. And it seems to me those lines now are extremely hard to draw between civilian and military capabilities because, uh, you know, this technology is just so advanced, nobody really understands, even the people working on it, what its potential uses are. I mean, is it getting harder for governments to guard against science being used for military capabilities in this context? Universities are under increasing pressure to commercialise their product. And we know that in Australia, there is a shortage of funds to get ideas from the first stage of innovation to commercialising production and Funding is solely needed for that, and a lot of that funding comes from China. So that gives a pressure for the university to work with foreign partners such as China to commercialise, to um, be more profitable. In terms of dual-use technology, it is a lot harder to have a clear line between civilian and military technology. And indeed, a lot is dual-use. I think that is something that the government needs to have a look at clearly what exactly is dual-use. Because on the one side, you have things like missiles, which is clearly military. On the other hand, perhaps you have cup holders, which can be used for cars or for tanks. So there is a line where you can assess military or civilian technology. Um, We can't say that everything that can be used for military must necessarily be classified as military technology. That will group too much civilian technology into that. I mean, I just remember when I was researching that story, what was interesting to me was that when we asked people in the US, they said these kind of companies would never ever be allowed to take up residence on American campuses because of this sort of long obsession of the FBI with these kind of things. 
And, and they really saw it as one reason why these companies were gravitating towards Australia, that this sort of endless desire for funding was allowing the space for such companies to play a role inside Australian institutions on Australian campuses. I mean, do you think the Australian government has taken this seriously enough? I think they are taking it more seriously now. I think before, perhaps Australia was not taking it seriously enough, but now they are looking at things like Export Control Act and maybe other methods of um, restricting this kind of technology. So... I think the good thing about all this publicity around these industrial espionage as well as national security espionage cases is that the government is taking it much more seriously than before. So I think that part of the uh, issue with the way that the FBI has dealt with industrial espionage in the United States is that the focus has been very much on individuals and less on institutions that are accepting funding or building close alliances with problematic counterparts in China. That it's shifting a little bit because of Huawei and um, recent policy moves. But for example, one case I looked at in my book involved MD Anderson Cancer Center uh, in Houston, um, which was actually where Robert Moe, the main character, had gotten cancer treatment. Um, So so partway through his case, he develops um, cancer and has to go there to get chemo um, while he's under house arrest. Um, And then after he leaves, there's this um, um, big issue involving the FBI um, running an 18-month investigation uh, into ethnic Chinese researchers um, at MD Anderson. And, you know, in the end, nobody was charged, but several people left the institution under a cloud of suspicion. And left out of that story in in a lot of the reporting that was done on it um, is the fact that MD Anderson had spent um, quite a lot of time building um, alliances with um, with institutions in China and even getting close to the Chinese government. They had uh, received this honor from Xi Jinping himself and were quite close to um, SAFIA, the State Administration of Foreign Expert Affairs. In which is the uh, administration that administers the Thousand Talents program. So there's this irony that the individuals end up persecuted while the, in- the institution itself is left alone, or at least manages to stay out of the headlines. And so when the focus is on individuals, and I do think um, Yuna is right that, that there needs to be also a clearer distinction between civilian technologies and military or dual-use technologies. And in the U.S., they have all been portrayed as a national security threat. So that's when we end up with the perception that people are being racially profiled. So, I mean, looking forward, what are the sort of dangers or trends that we're likely to see ahead? I wonder in Australia whether one of the things, Yoon, that we're likely to see is this kind of protectionism where all these different sectors like, I don't know, milk, for example, dairy sector, become seen as national um, goods in order to protect them. I certainly hope not. I think the political trend is towards protectionism. Even without the national security angle at the moment, uh, people seem to favor uh, self-sufficiency, protectionism, and uh, trade openness uh, seems to be going out of a favor, which is very concerning. But another thing we need to keep in mind of is with emerging technology If we are not getting enough funding from 
not from China, but from anywhere, it is quite possible that this technology will never be developed as well. And that will have a um, negative effect on our standard of living um, as well. Mara Yun, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Mara Vistandal and Yun Jiang. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Our editor is Andy Hazel, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.